0: Well gentlemen, uh, am I on? Welcome to the uh, session, the breakout session. At the uh, request of the uh, people organizing this conference, and I'm extremely grateful to them for having had the opportunity to speak. Uh, This is titled Discernment in an age of reckless decisions. It was originally reckless decision-making, and I shortened it uh, for the purpose of grammar. Um, we have a lot to cover today, so let me just uh, thank you for giving me your attention for this period of time. Hopefully at the end of it, you'll feel that it was profitable. Uh, it sure is great to have our pastor back, and regardless of what you just heard John would have made a tremendous lawyer. <laughs> uh, he also would have been a great judge. And I've seen that uh put into practice over the uh, 23 plus years that I've had the opportunity of serving here as an elder. So let's start with a word of prayer and then we'll move on. Our Father in heaven, we dedicate this time. We dedicate this day to you, Father I pray that each of these men at the end of our time together throughout the day will come away being better equipped to function as a man of God in our culture, in a society that is quickly rejecting you almost at breakneck speed. Guide us, Lord. Give us great wisdom as to what we're going to cover, as to how we do it. Even now, we ask for you to be with us and honor every aspect of what takes place today. Amen. Telephone rang, and I'll just be blunt. It was my mom. Mom picked up the phone, and a voice at the other end said, "Grandma, Grandma. Hello, Grandma." Uh, somewhat embarrassed, not sure what she was hearing, she questionably, questioningly asked. Matthew, the name of one of my nephews. And of course, he assured her, or the voice on the other end, that it was him. And he said, Grandma. And he indicated he was outside of the country, he was in desperate situation, Uh, something had happened, and to be able to leave and come back to America, he needed some money quickly. He hadn't been able, of course, to reach anybody else. But he really needed to have some money wired to him as quickly as possible, as fast as possible. And it was, again, totally desperate. Well, mom didn't take the time to check with each of her sons. Uh, She arranged, out of an abundance of love, out of an abundance of care for her family, uh, to have money immediately wired to the number that was given. And you guess. You guess it properly. You guess it correctly. This is what is known as the grandparents scheme. This is something that we face every day in our culture. If you work for a large organization, very likely the IT department in your organization will from time to time uh, conduct training sessions on how you, as a user of their computers, as a user of their email system, can recognize what we know as a phishing email. That's not spelled with an F, it's spelled with a PH. They want you to try to click on that, and if they get you to do that, you have allowed access to your company's uh, email system. And some of them are very well done, very skilled, very capably uh, done. And it costs American businesses millions of dollars every year. Uh, So we try to avoid that. Also, you probably have learned by now that you do not react quickly to answer and provide the money when it's requested by someone uh, that you haven't met writing to you from Nigeria and wanting to, out of the goodness of their heart, uh, make funds available to you. These are examples of reckless decisions that we have in our day and age. So when they asked for the uh, topic to be decision-making in an age of reckless decisions, uh, we thought that this might be a good way to get started uh, by just defining what is it that we're talking about technology. Recklessness. What it is. What is recklessness? If you type it into uh, Google, if you look uh, in any garden variety dictionary, you're going to find it defined as something like the following. Having a lack of regard for the danger or consequences of one's actions. Rashness to be utterly unconcerned about the consequences of a particular action, marked by lack of proper caution, careless of consequences. And the last thing you have uh, in front of you is the phrase, never deliberate. Now, you might be tempted to read it, never deliberate, with a soft U and a T at the end of the second word. But in fact, it should be understood as being never deliberate. It is a verb, not an adjective. This was the motto of an individual that most of you have heard of in church history. I'm not going to identify him immediately. But in his early years, this man was uh, a demonstration you cannot come up with a better demonstration in all of recorded history of what it means what it means to be an individual who never deliberated and this accord was in his motto he was released He was released from home and allowed to join the Royal Navy as a late teenager. His father had been a captain in the Royal Navy. This man uh, riding on the coattails of dad was able to take a position in the Royal Navy as a midshipman. He is an individual who is a junior ranked officer, not like a naval cadet today, He's a junior officer. This guy falls in love with a young lady and then realizes that his ship has been ordered on a voyage that would take five years. Lovesick, 19 years of age, and as only a teenager can do, uh, he acted impulsively, and he deserts from the Royal Navy. The year was 1745. He had been sent to town to lead a uh, a mission that, that would obtain supplies for the ship. And while he's doing that, he decides to desert. He is, of course, quickly captured. He's returned to the ship. He is publicly flogged. He is demoted in rank. He's getting to experience the revenge of all of the guys that he had pushed around and bossed. Uh, Earlier in the ship, later on, he is desperate and he is considering how to uh, get back at the captain. He's realizing that he has nothing but uh, misery ahead of him for years. So he's considering both murder and suicide. He learns of an opportunity that presents itself. And again, without taking the time to deliberate, to think it through, He arranges for his discharge and exchange as a seaman on a British merchant ship. And of course, continuing the trend, while he is on that ship, he meets and begins to work for a British slave trader, goes to work for this man. This man eventually enslaves him goes through a time of misery doing that. Later on, he is released to the service of a different slave trader and eventually becomes a captain of a slave ship. He served in that capacity for a number of years. While he's doing that, and this is something that you probably have never heard about this individual, uh, he indulges in repeated sexual promiscuity. It would not be too strong a word to say rape. He also indulges in witchcraft. You heard Dr. MacArthur talking about doctrines of demons this morning. Ransomed. This was early on before he had uh, spent the entirety of his career uh, as a slave ship captain. Ransomed. Ransomed. He has left a huge inheritance. He is allowed to return home. Gets drunk. Gets drunk while at sea. Uh, Nearly jumps to his death. History tells us that he was going to jump onto a lifeboat, what he thought was a lifeboat. He misjudged the uh, distance. Uh, And at the last possible second, he was restrained by some of his drinking companions, from jumping to what would have certainly been his death. In doing that, he illustrates the consequences to avoid of recklessness. Dishonor. He was definitely dishonored, degraded. He was reduced in rank from being a ship officer to being an enlisted man. He ran the risk of disease sexually transmitted disease, repeatedly ran the risk of death, poor choices of friends. Poor choices of friends. Uh, The Bible tells us that uh, poor friends, bad friends will corrupt good morals. And that was precisely what he was experiencing. Disastrous choices made in the area of uh, potential employers, in the area of potential jobs. Uh, One of the things that I've seen in the legal profession in the 20th and 21st century, uh, tragic incidents where young men or young women coming out of law school choose their first job carelessly. Uh, And in some cases, go to work for individuals that are running total frauds, total scams. Now, try to get a job with that on your resume. Uh, But that was precisely the same situation that this man had found himself in that I'm talking about. He ran into economic loss. He was uh, degraded in pay uh, over the course of time, he ran the risk of severe financial loss otherwise. Reprehensible memories. One of the worst possible things, and some of you in a group this size probably can understand this and relate to this, uh, of ungodly and unwise conduct early on in life is that you create memories that come back at times that you do not want them to times that you just have to turn around and just give those times, those memories to Christ and ask him to deal with them. That was precisely what this man was finding himself facing. Doctrines of demons. Doctrines of demons. Uh, This, of course, can run the gamut from the sophisticated doctrines that we find ourselves hearing uh, on frequent occasions in our modern Western culture today. Uh, it can go the gamut from that to outright blatant occultism, sorcery, uh, satanic worship. Unfortunately, we're seeing more and more of even that coming back in our culture at this time. That can lead to total doctrinal disaster. And this man was well on his way uh, to experiencing that in his life. Now, we're going to come back to him later on in the course of this lesson. Uh, we're going to look at another individual who shows us what discernment is and how these kind of choices can be avoided. Uh, and there's going to be an interesting twist at the end of the lesson, at the end of our time together. Uh, we'll finish that, and if time permits, uh, we'll take any questions that there may still be. In contrast, we're going to look at a man by the name of Solomon. Any of you ever heard of Solomon? All right. Uh, Solomon's name has become virtually synonymous with wisdom. Uh, you've heard the expression, the wisdom of a Solomon. He reigned as Israel's third king from 971 B.C. until roughly 931 B.C., the Scripture tells us he was king for a total of 40 years. Uh, He was the son of David, the son of David uh, with Bathsheba. And that becomes important as we see how this plays out. He is the author of Ecclesiastes. He is the author of Song of Solomon. Much of the book of Proverbs The great majority of that book he would have edited and compiled. Uh, And he's also the author of two of the psalms that we have in our scripture. (laughs) Fascinating guy. Uh, And again, there is a twist on his life that we're going to see as we near the end of it. I spent the better part of 37 years working in the legal world uh, and I've been interested in the process of adjudication for much of that period of time. I had the privilege of serving as an administrative law judge uh, for approximately 14 years. And this passage here describes one of the most famous trials in the history of all of adjudication and the history of mankind. We'll read the text together. Two prostitutes came to the king. That was Solomon and they stood before him. The one woman said, Oh, my Lord, this woman and I live in the same house, and I gave birth to a child while she was also in the house. On the third day after I gave birth, this woman also gave birth. She was pregnant at the same time. And we were alone. There was no one else with us in the house. Only the two of us were there. This woman's son died in the night because she rolled over and lay on him. And she arose at midnight and took my son from beside me while your servant slept. She laid him at her breast and her dead son at my breast. When I woke up in the morning to nurse my child, behold, he was dead. But when I looked at him closely in the morning, as only a mother could do, uh, he was not the child that I had given birth to. The other woman said, no, the living child is mine and the dead child is yours. First woman said, no, the dead child is yours and the living child is mine. Thus they spoke before the king. Today we would call this a paternity case. Whose baby is it? Now we all know that the first thing that we would arrange today to do would be to have a DNA test. Absolutely. Well, this was several thousand years before DNA tests had been admitted uh, or had even been invented. So Solomon has the challenge of trying to figure out whose child this is. Then the king said, and if we get to the process of deliberation starting here right now, the one woman says, this is my son that is alive and your son is dead. And the other says, no. No. Your son is dead, and my son is the living one. He stated the issue. And the king said, Bring me a sword. So a sword was brought before the king. This is supposed to be dropping right now a picture of a man holding a sword and a baby, and the king looking at him and saying, Go ahead, cut him in half and let one woman have half of the child and the other one have the other half. The king said, divide the living child in two, give half to one and half to the other. Then the woman whose son was alive said to the king, because her heart yearned for her son, O my Lord, give her the living child and by no means put him to death. But the other said, he shall be neither mine nor yours. Divide him. Then the king, when he heard that, he said, okay, stop everything. Give the living child to that woman, the woman who had said, give him to the other woman, and by no means put him to death. Solomon said, that woman is his mother. All Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered, and they stood in awe of the king because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. Now, in doing this, Solomon exercises what we know today as discernment, right? He exercises discernment. This looks on the surface— as if it would be just another extremely reckless judicial maneuver, an extremely reckless attempt on the part of Solomon. Uh, And how could this be anything other than what we're trying to avoid, discernment in an age of reckless decisions? In fact, however, underneath the surface, and keep that phrase in mind, underneath the surface, much more was going on. Solomon is exercising discernment, and we want to understand why or how it was that he did it. He actually acts like he's uh, somewhat crazy. Uh, If you walked into a court today for a paternity case and the judge said, okay, just cut the child in half, uh, we would be consulting the Committee on Judicial Performance and we would be having a psychiatric examination of that judge so quickly it would make his head swim, right? That's not what's going on here, however. Solomon is implementing what we know today as circumstantial evidence. Anybody ever heard the term circumstantial evidence? Okay. One of the problems that we face in our criminal justice system today is that while people may have heard the term they're becoming increasingly unable to uh, consider what it means or to carry it out. In fact, what's going on here is that circumstantial evidence, which means evidence based on an inference reasonably drawn, is being elicited by Solomon as he carries out this process of inquisition, the re the reasonable inference that would be drawn was that when faced at the prospect of the possibility of that child dying immediately, the real mother would react in a way that would do anything to avoid that taking place. That's the inference that Solomon drew quite reasonably from that. He looked beneath the surface, and then he went on to reach the desired conclusion. Now, keep in mind, Also, and this becomes extremely important in the process of decision making, uh, he was very precisely focused on what he had to decide. Uh, And this is also a part of discernment. Solomon at this point was not concerned with whether these women were actively engaged in the practice of prostitution. Scripture identifies that that's what they were. Uh, He was not concerned with whether or not their testimony as a result of that would be credible or not. He wasn't worrying about that. He also wasn't concerning himself with the question of whether or not uh, they should be facing and experiencing the biblical punishment for prostitution or for adultery, for sex outside of marriage. He focused only on the issue at hand. And that becomes extremely important in carrying out true biblical discernment. You concentrate, you know what the issue is, and you go to that, and you don't let yourself be distracted. Now, for a man to have done this, he had to be well-versed, You had to have a clear grasp just exactly on what discernment is and is not. Giving a definition to this, it will be totally consistent, I can guarantee you, with what Dr. MacArthur has taught. It will be consistent with what the rest of the breakout speakers are teaching, and it will be consistent with what uh, Phil DeCourcy is going to cover this afternoon. Discernment, what is it? Briefly. It is the ability to look beneath the surface, past external appearances, and make very precise choices, often between very similar options. Biblically, those choices will primarily be between good and evil. Dr. MacArthur pointed out this morning that uh, 1 John 4 calls us to discern between uh, the spirits that are godly and the spirits that are demonic. To some degree at times, it will be necessary to discern between that which is good, intrinsically, and that which is better. And sometimes, and this should not come as a surprise to us because we see consumer rankings of products all the time, uh, sometimes we have to discern between the better and the best. What is the best use of my time? What is the best plan that we can implement in terms of a proposed mission, in terms of a proposed ministry activity? And I have to give credit to my son, Michael, who's here today, uh, for this next phrase. Discernment is perception that has been carefully trained by wisdom. Let's say that again. Discernment is perception that has been carefully trained by wisdom. Uh, In support of that, Proverbs chapter 20, verse 8 tells us a king who sits on the throne of justice, and ASB says he disperses, Uh, the ESV says he winnows. I hate autocorrect. Um, It's not windows, it is winnows. The best. The best word for it, probably the one that we are most inclined to understand, says that he sifts all evil with his eyes. His perception has been trained over the course of time to be able to recognize what's going on and react accordingly. Well, how did Solomon acquire this ability? What happened? The key distinction... Between a wise decision and a reckless decision usually is that sufficient time has gone into the process. If someone is pushing you to make an immediate decision, you got to invest now or the opportunity to invest will be lost. You just tell that decision to go away. You tell that opportunity that you're going to pass on it. If it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. Okay. If they push you for an immediate decision, an immediate now decision, pass on it. Over the course of time, what is wise usually emerges. And that is, in fact, what had happened in the life of Solomon. The only difference is between Solomon and the other individual that we talked about earlier is that Solomon had prepared And he had been prepared over the course of time. We'll see also as we walk through, he prayed. Never underestimate the importance of seeking the moment-by-moment guidance of God as you're attempting to make wise, unreckless decisions. He practiced. And we'll see a little bit more about what that's involving. And he avoided something referred to as partiality. I'm going to tell you right now, and we'll explain it a little bit more, that partiality is the exact functional opposite of discernment. Partiality, as it's defined in Scripture, is precisely the functional opposite of true discernment. Solomon learned to avoid it. He didn't let himself get distracted uh, by the pleasing appearance that the two uh, women had before him at that particular time. He kept his focus on the issue that had to be decided. He had been prepared. He had been prepared by his father. Proverbs 4, 3 through 5, when I was a son with my mother, with my father, excuse me, the only one in the sight of my mother, at that point, he probably was the only child that she had. Uh, He, this is David, taught me and he said to me, let your heart hold fast to my words keep my commandments and live. David, by this point in time, had learned the importance of good parenting. He'd been a disaster up to this point. Uh, he's telling Solomon, he says, get wisdom, get insight, do not forget, and do not turn away from the words of my mouth. Second Samuel 2, 1-9 consists of some of the last words of David ever recorded in Scripture. Some of them are extremely noble. He tells us that the king must rule and do what is right. Uh, He must pursue justice. And yet also in there, he tells Solomon, there are two guys in your kingdom that over the course of years you're going to have to have executed. So he's telling him, what he needs to do. He's telling him who to watch out for. He's telling him, he's identifying two men. Uh, And one of them at one time had been one of David's closest friends. Uh, But he's saying at some point during the course of your reign, they're going to have to be dealt with. And the description really only can be understood by David telling Solomon that he's going to have to have them terminated with extreme prejudice, to use a modern term. So he had been prepared by his father, and he had also been prepared by his mother. Most likely, when you see in the latter chapters of Proverbs the word Lemuel, most likely Lemuel should be understood as being another name for the man we also know as Solomon. If that is in fact the case, when he says by his mother, we're understanding that this was counsel given to him by Bathsheba. Bathsheba had developed wisdom over the time in which she was between when she was taking a bath on the top of a roof uh, and this particular point in time. She had developed a tremendous amount of savvy, and she developed a great deal of wisdom. She says, my son, do not give your strength to women. If you remember in the original Rocky, uh, Rocky's trainer says, women weaken legs. Those of you old enough to remember the line by Burgess Meredith, some of them you're all smiling and nodding. This is the idea of what uh, uh, Bathsheba is telling to Solomon. Do not give your strength to women. Uh, do not dissipate your moral resolve. Do not dissipate your physical health. Uh, do not give your strength to women. She's not saying don't get married. She's not saying don't have a normal sex life within marriage. She is saying avoid sex outside of marriage. Avoid participating in conduct which will destroy kings. What she have in mind, it is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to desire strong drink. For they will drink and forget what is decreed. They'll get into the habit of being drunk and they'll forget the laws that they're supposed to administer. Their reasoning will be weakened. Their reasoning will be impaired to the point that their recall is not as sharp as it should be. And it impairs their ability to act for justice. She goes on to say they will drink and forget what is decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. Never let anyone tell you that the Bible doesn't have concern for human rights. Proverbs 31 points this out very clearly. Uh, Bathsheba goes on to counsel him, open your mouth for the mute, for those unable to speak on their own behalf, for the rights of all the unfortunate, those that have been the victims of injustice, those that have been improperly treated, the widows and the orphans in our culture. Open your mouth, judge righteously, and defend the rights of the afflicted and the needy. And then after that, the remaining part of the book of Proverbs, the last portion of chapter 31, uh, she tells her son a description of the godly woman. We hear that all the time Mother's Day, and we should. Uh, We hear that frequently when we talk about what a woman should be. We understand that as dads, when hopefully our parents uh, tried to impress upon us the kind of a woman that we needed to marry. Uh, But that, it should be kept in mind, comes most likely from Bathsheba, that great description of the virtuous woman. So Solomon had been prepared by both his father and by his mother. That isn't all that took place, however. He prepared himself. Deuteronomy tells us that when a king was to take office, one of the first things that he was to do, one of the first things that was supposed to take place in the course of his reign, was that he was to be given a scroll and a pen with ink. Now it shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. Why is that? To keep him from cheating, to keep him from uh, uh, skipping over passages that he might not want to think about. Make sure he gets it all. It shall be with him and he shall read it All the days of his life, all the days of his life, the one in power was called upon to be taking in the content of the Word of God. It was probably a little easier at that particular time because the scriptures that would be contemplated would be the first five books in the Bible. It's not the entirety of the the Word of God that we have in our possession today, but it's kind of interesting to think what it would be like to live in a country or even the first five books of the Bible were considered on a daily basis by those in political power. At any rate, uh, he was to learn some specific things, the passage tells us. He was to learn the fear of God. He was to carefully observe the words of his law. He was to avoid letting his heart be lifted up above his countrymen. He was to avoid turning from the commandment to the right or to the left. The desired goal of that would be that his sons would be able to continue long in the position of monarch in the country of Israel. Now let's focus a little bit more on that. He was to learn, first of all, a high view of, an awe of God. Psalm 119, 105, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Proverbs 9, verse 10, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. He was to learn the judicial, the ceremonial, and most importantly, the moral law of God. He was to understand all three of those particular aspects of the law. He was to learn humility. He was not to regard himself as better intrinsically or otherwise than any of his fellow men. He was to pursue godly conduct, understanding that behind this there is a principle that you'll see again and again and again in the New Testament uh, beyond what we tend to think, we tend to think that our ideas will create the conduct that we pursue, and if we have godly ideas, it will pursue godly conduct, and to a degree that is biblically founded. But it is also the case that godly conduct tends to produce greater wisdom. Ungodly conduct tends to darken our understanding, we'll excuse ourselves, And we will lose biblical wisdom. We'll lose the ability to be discerning. He was to guard against deception. That's the meaning of the phrase, not turning to the right or to the left. He was not to pursue any course of conduct that would go contrary to the Scripture. He prepared. He spent substantial time preparing he prayed. Scripture tells us, and this is one of the uh, greatest, most hopeful events in the life of Solomon. It actually occurs at a time in which uh, Solomon was already beginning to compromise in his life. But God, in his graciousness, appears to Solomon in a dream. And God says, ask me what you wish me to give you. And we've heard this before. Solomon says, you have shown great loving kindness to your servant, David, my father, according as he walked before you in truth and righteousness and uprightness of heart. You have reserved for him this great loving kindness that you have given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. Now, O Lord, my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father, David. And Solomon, totally honest, In his self-assessment here, he says, I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. Your servant is in the midst of your people, which you have chosen a great people who are too many to be numbered or counted. So give your servant an understanding heart to judge your people to discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? The Scripture tells us that it was pleasing in the sight of God that Solomon asked this thing. God said to him, "'Because you have asked this thing and have not asked for yourself a long life, you have not asked for money, you have not asked for uh, the lives of your enemies, but you have asked for wisdom, you have asked for discernment to understand justice, "'Behold, I have given this according to your words.'" James 1, verse 5, if any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives liberally. And in the old King James, it says, and upbraideth not. Doesn't rebuke us for that request. When I was driving to uh, hear cases for a number of years, I would frequently offer this prayer, Lord, let the decisions I issue today Be consistent with your character, guided by your word, and pleasing in your sight. The scripture tells us God honors and is pleased with that prayer. That was what took place in the life of Solomon. God went on to provide him with the things he hadn't asked for as well. He practiced. And now we need to understand there's a certain element of paradox here. God had promised to provide this, and yet Solomon knew he had a responsibility. He had to do his part. Understand this. This is always going to be true in the life of an individual. God sanctifies you, and yet he expects you to do your part in implementing that sanctification. Philippians tells us, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So salvation, sanctification, I should say, is all of God. And at the same time, it is all of man. There is a part that we have in this particular area. Hebrews 5.12, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. Get this next phrase, never let it leave your thinking. Solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern between good and evil. There is an ability to discern between good and evil that increases with the practice. That is precisely what Hebrews 5 is telling us. Solomon would have practiced any time he went through the material we now know today as Proverbs. He would have practiced when he thought through uh, the description in Proverbs of the ungodly woman. He would have practiced when he thought through the issue of how money is to be used. He who lends to the poor, he who gives to the poor lends to the Lord. Solomon had repeatedly practiced, and the same thing needs to be true for us in our lives today. We need to be pondering the Scripture, pondering those contrasts, those situations in the book of Scripture, in the book of Proverbs primarily, and considering them on a repeat basis. And it needs to be so quickly, so deeply ingrained into us that when a response is needed— it should rise to the point of being reflexive. Uh, Carl Hargrove and I both played defense in American football, and we were talking just a few weeks ago. Uh, Carl was a linebacker. I was a defensive tackle. And I knew that if I took a step across the line of scrimmage and there was no one there, I had been coached. I had practiced well enough to know that I had to immediately be moving to my inside. I had to be stepping towards the center. I had to be clubbing and getting ready to hit someone. If you know the game of football, the play that I would be dealing with is what is referred to as a trap block, where the offensive guard from the other side of scrimmage comes at you so quickly that you don't have time to think. It has to be trained as an instinctive, reflexive response that you immediately have to take on that particular type of block. Well, I'm telling you guys, the reality of the temptations that we sometimes deal with are that they are so strong and so quick that you had better be trained in the law of God and the word of God so quickly that you can respond instinctively and reflexively to some of those temptations. You may not have the time for conscious deliberation. Practice is imperative. Solomon avoided partiality. Deuteronomy 1.17, you shall not show partiality in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not fear man, for the judgment is God's. The case that is too hard for you, you shall bring to me and I will hear it. Moving on. Literally, the Hebrew word translated partiality. And the Greek word in the New Testament, Uh, also translated the same thing, implies that you are doing so based on facial recognition and facial recognition alone. Literally, you are knowing faces. To show partiality in judgment is not good. Someone walks in looking sophisticated, looking intelligent, looking well-dressed in my courtroom, I can't make a decision based on that and that alone. I have to look past the surface and decide the case based on the law and the facts alone. Solomon writes to show partiality to the wicked is not good, nor to thrust aside the righteous in judgment. Partiality in judgment is going to lead to a miscarriage of justice. Partiality and justice. Partiality in judgment leads to a miscarriage of justice. And Solomon had learned to avoid that. Those of you that uh, were around in the mid-70s may recall a Motown song. It was by a one-hit wonder group. I'm seeing Undisputed Truth. Absolutely. Maybe we can sing it together. (laughs) Smiling faces sometimes pretend to be your friend. Smiling faces show no traces of the evil that lurks within. Somebody's saying, can you dig it? Can you dig it? (laughs) (laughs) Smiling faces, they don't tell the truth. Smiling faces tell lies. And I got proof. The truth is in the eyes because the eyes don't lie. Amen. Well, there's a certain amount of validity to that. The eyes have been referred to as the windows of the soul. Remember, a smile is just a frown turned upside down. And then it goes on. Beware of the handshake that hides the snake. Beware of the pat on the back. It just might hold you back. Jealousy, misery, envy. Then he goes on. Your enemy won't do you no harm. We're not going to worry about the grammar right now. Because you know where he's coming from. Don't let the handshake and the smile fool you. Take my advice. I'm only trying to school you. Learn to look past the smiling faces. That's not to be what your focus of decision is to be. Um, It was as true in Solomon's age as it was in the age of the undisputed truth. And by the way, do you remember the year that came out? I'm going to say seventy-two. You got it right. Absolutely. (laughs) 1972. Okay. He avoided partiality, no favoritism to those who are attractive, pleasant, or have smiling faces. No favoritism against those who are not pleasant or attractive. Sometimes an individual would come into my hearing room reeking to high heaven, had not bothered to dress for the hearing. Wasn't terribly sophisticated, but when the facts and the law were in his favor, he got the decision. It didn't matter what the other side looked like. There is not to be favoritism to or against those from a particular ethnic or economic background. If you look careful in the Old Testament's use of partiality, it is expanded to prohibit discrimination in favor of or against those from a particular economic background, a particular ethnic background, a particular uh, position of social status. You decide cases based only on the issues at hand. Again, I pointed out prostitution was not before Solomon, and you decide it based on all of the evidence. We're moving on. We're getting close to the end. There is a terrific need uh, to persevere over the course of time in discernment. Titus 2, verse 1 and 2, As for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, and in perseverance. And tragically, the older Solomon, for at least a period of time, uh, we're not totally sure when the book of Ecclesiastes was written over the course of Solomon's life, so it's possible Uh, that he may have come to his senses before he passed. Uh, But at least for a period of time, Solomon did not persevere in discernment. Scripture tells us that he married multiple foreign women in violation of the divine commandment. Scripture told him that he was not to be doing this. He would have known this. He was totally without excuse. And yet the scripture tells us that he repeatedly married foreign women. Uh, When you combine the wives with those who were in the status of concubines, the number comes somewhere around 1,000. That in of itself marks the man at times as being terribly foolish, but it got worse. Scripture tells us that Solomon allowed his foreign wives to turn his heart away from God and to the worship of other gods. Solomon, unbelievably, for at least a period of time, practices idolatry. As a result of that, and never let anybody tell you there is no connection between true, proper doctrine and social activity, Solomon engages in the abusive treatment of his labor force what's God's response first of all he raises up multiple adversaries first Kings 11 9 through 40 describes three opponents that Solomon faced after his death ten of the twelve tribes of Israel rebelled against his son Rehoboam and at this point in time the people of God are divided into Two kingdoms, the northern kingdom consisting of 10 tribes and the southern kingdom left in uh, Rehoboam's uh, jurisdiction uh, of two tribes. The top uh, 10 tribes uh, eventually, by and large, disappear uh, in the captivity that God ordained later on. So it was a tragic consequence. Solomon knew what would have happened and yet he did not continue to persevere. There are times that it is absolutely and totally true that there is no fool like an old fool. And this is a warning to me. It is a warning to the other gentlemen here who uh, have gray hair, who have been around for a while. We need to continue practicing perseverance. Okay? Okay. Solomon, who had demonstrated discernment early in life, at least for a while in his later years, does not do so. Now, I'd mentioned earlier another individual. and Some of you may have guessed that the person I was talking about was a man by the name of John Newton. John Newton. Newton is converted on or about March 10, 1748, through the process of, of sanctification. Eventually he leaves uh, his position as a slave ship captain. He is known today as the author of Amazing Grace. One of the biggest fallacies that you will encounter uh, repeatedly, again and again and again in our culture, is a treatment of the lyrics of Amazing Grace as figurative. You'll hear Amazing Grace played. You'll hear it sung at almost any public funeral. And people do so tending to dismiss what those lyrics state. Make no mistake about it. When Newton says, was grace that saved a wretch like me, he is not exaggerating (laughs) at all. This man totally, accurately, clearly could be described as having been a wretch. But it was God and God's grace that reached into the life of that man. This is important because some of you guys may have come from a background in which you've already made some of the same reckless, stupid decisions that John Newton did. But we are here today to say that the grace of God is still available. The same grace, the same Atoning death of the Lord Jesus Christ that saved John Newton is able to save any man here today uh, who may not be sure of his salvation, who may have made those same stupid mistakes, or even worse, that grace is still available. And in contrast with Solomon, in contrast with Solomon, John Newton persevered and developed discernment into his advanced years. He was a pastor, he was a counselor, and he is probably the great correspondent of that period of time that we know as the latter part of the Great Awakening. Uh, He bridges actually the time between the First Great Awakening and the Second Great Awakening uh, in church history. He becomes one of the most respected figures in the church during the latter part of the 18th century. A man by the name of William Cooper comes to his church. Cooper is the man that we know as the author of There is a Fountain Filled with Blood Drawn from Emmanuel's Veins. He also wrote the poem that you've heard the line, Most Likely, God Moves in Mysterious Ways, His Wonders to Perform. What you may not know is that Cooper wrestled with suicidal impulses for nearly all of his life. And it was John Newton's wise counsel uh, that basically kept Cooper alive and kept Cooper productive. Between the two of them, uh, and Newton himself writes uh, at least six well-known hymns, Amazing Grace, uh, Glorious Things of These Are Spoken, Come Let Us Sing Together, Uh, and I mangled the title, and I apologize for that. Uh, But Newton writes at least six hymns himself that have blessed the church. Working with Cooper, however, uh, he published a hymnal, the only hymnal, in 1779. There are 348 hymns in that particular hymnal. So between the two of them, they blessed the church with nearly 350 songs, some of which we are still singing and enjoying today. He mentors a young British parliamentarian, William Wilberforce. Wilberforce becomes a believer in large part through the ministry of John Newton. He becomes a believer and then he wrestles with the question of whether he should uh, abandon the position that he had in parliament and he had been in Parliament based on uh, his family's status and position. He goes to Newton and he says, should I go to seminary? Should I become a member of the uh, clergy? And Newton tells him no. Newton counseled him that God had gifted him, God had prepared him, God had put him in a position where he could have national leadership ability And it was because of Newton that Wilberforce stays in Parliament. Later on in the course of time, Wilberforce is the leading individual in the legislative campaign uh, to outlaw the British slave trade. He also, as part of a group called the Clapham Society, uh, worked to introduce many other uh, provisions into British law that would make the life of the normal British citizen much more bearable at a time when uh, it had been anything but pleasant. He eventually testifies uh, in front of Parliament. Uh, His testimony concerning what he had seen has an element of brutality that really uh, we can't use in polite circles because it was a brutality that was inescapable. It was totally part of that particular practice. It was a practice that went totally against Scripture. Uh, A capital crime in the Old Testament was kidnapping or enslaving anyone. Newton took the step of testifying before Parliament, and it was in large part through his work along with that of William Wilberforce that Parliament eventually outlawed the British slave trade. Uh, If you heard Dr. MacArthur preach last summer on Ezekiel 18, Newton fits the pattern of a man who forsakes ungodliness due to the grace of God and then later on moves to take righteous action. He passes away shortly before Christmas in 1807. One of the last things he says on his deathbed is the following fantastic line. Although my memory is fading, I remember two things. And again, he's not exaggerating. I am a great sinner. He knew how true it was. And God in his mercy had allowed him to forget some of the worst parts. But even more than that, I know that Christ is a great Savior. Christ is a great Savior. And in the context, what he's really saying I'm a terrible sinner, but Christ is a much greater Savior than I am a terrible sinner. And as I look across this group, I know that some of you totally understand that because you've lived that out. Now, what do we do with all of this in conclusion? Are we living lives characterized by reckless choices? If so, the amazing grace that John Newton wrote about Offers hope. Are our lives characterized by wise, discerning choices? And if not, if not, the solution is we get to know God's word better and better and better. As I talked about earlier, it should become so deep a part of us that our responses are trained reflex. We take on the trap block We make sure that our response is proper, totally biblical, and sometimes quicker than conscious thought will allow. And gentlemen, um, and the index finger is pointing back at myself on this, as we are aging, are we continuing to pursue wisdom and discernment? this is something that may God allow us all to be living out in the course of our lives. Uh, This applies to me. This applies to each and every one of those in leadership within the church. It applies to all of us. We need to be continuing to allow God to shape our minds, shape our thoughts, and move in the direction of wise discernment when faced with choices in an age that calls for reckless decision-making at every step. Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the grace that reached out to John Newton and has reached out to each and every one of us. We thank you for the wisdom of Solomon, for the example of what not to do that his life provides in the word of God, and for the positive example of what we are to do. Father, I pray for each man here that the word we have covered today will bear fruit in his life. Not only that, Lord, I pray that it would bear fruit in the lives of each person in that man's family, the children, the grandchildren, and the great-grandchildren that will come from his line. Even now, Lord, we thank you. We ask your blessing upon the meal that we're about to consume. We ask, Father, that you guide our thoughts and our minds through the rest of this day. Amen.